Hi, this is KS Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Nerdbird Podcast. And today I want to talk about She Makes Comics documentary that's currently on Netflix, at least Netflix USA. And I just wanted to give a brief uh, trigger warning that I'm going to be mentioning sexual assault and sexually explicit titles. I'm going to give a warning right before I do it. I just wanted to give you all a heads up. But um, what is She Makes Comics? This is a documentary as of October 2019, currently on Netflix, but was originally released in 2017. This film is about female comic artists, writers, and readers alike who describe what comics has meant and still means to them, not only as individuals, but as a community pulling double duty as creators and audience. They take views on a journey through history, paying homage to those who've come before them and paved the way for them who has greatly influenced them as artists and encouraged them to take the chance with working in the arts as they did and the challenges they all had to persevere through various struggles to achieve their dreams and using their artwork as their voices to help progress the world's thinking forward. Produced by Respect Films and Sequart Organization, She Makes Comics was directed by Marissa Stoder, Director of Photography, Jordan Renner, and produced by Karen Green, Patrick Meany, again, Jordan Renner, and Marissa Stoder. Executive Producers, Julian Darius, Mike Phillips, and consultant, Creative Consultant, Karen Green. So I split this up into three, three different sections. And the first section is about the various creators, writers, and executives. And the first one up is Jackie Orms. So the film... Going it goes back to pretty much the beginning of uh, comics heyday of black and white printed in the newspapers in the 1930s. They were novelties back then when everyone read comics, men, women, girls, and boys. And as I said, a woman I was pleasantly surprised to discover while watching this film was Jackie Orms. I had never heard of this woman and to find out she was, quote, Possibly the first nationally syndicated black woman cartoonist during her time in the 1930s was a big shot to me. A big part of this podcast is about discovering gems from the past that has shaped the world today. I only figured black women in comics was more of a modern concept, but I wouldn't have even began to imagine black women or black people in general working in comics other than reading them. So Orms created her own comic in 1937 called Torchy Brown. In the black-owned Pittsburgh Courier, it's important to point out that she drew her own comics in fashion vastly different than the times that she lived in. While women's clothing remained loose and shapeless, Orms depicted the female characters in her strips wearing coats fitted around the bust and long skirts pinched in at the waist, accentuating the hips. Not only were her characters beautifully dressed and outspoken, but Orms inserted her own political views into Torchy Brown's stories. This led to Orms being investigated by the FBI during the McCarthy era. Such issues were about racial injustices, educational equality, foreign and domestic policies, and the atom bomb. In 1940, the Torchy Brown comic came to an end, and Orms dedicated herself to the po- to the two panel strips, uh, Candy and Patty, Joe, and Ginger. After Torchy Brown's return in 1950, Orms started creating her own paper dolls called Torchy Togs, along with the comic. Unfortunately, because of the heavily segregated times, Orm's success was limited to black-owned newspapers, but still a success nonetheless. After the demand for more original content from 
printers began to rise, so did the desire for more confident, strong, beautiful heroines in comics such as Jungle Girl and Mary Marvel. And I believe as a direct effect of these new characters, women and girls could see themselves in the readership shifted to 55% female to 45% male. But that wasn't enough for printers anymore because when superheroes became the priority over all other genres, female readership declined significantly. What made it worse was that the portrayal of women in comics downgraded from intelligent, independent, strong-willed, and curious to helpless damsels in distress and a lovesick shell of a character. Luckily, we had these two following women to give us something to look forward to in the comics industry. First, Ramona Freighton, who was referred to as the Grand Lady of DC Comics. I'm not sure how she feels about that or being called that, but... They left it in the film, so I'll just go with she did mine. <laughs> and I keep going. Uh, absolutely no disrespect to the original creators, Paul Norris and Mort Weisinger. But Freyden was the one that made Aquaman a more exceptional character after she first started drawing him. Metamorpho, the element man, came about when Freyden semi-retired from comics to spend more time with her family. In the documentary, she describes how Metamorpho was actually nearly naked in all her comics because he constantly transformed or morphed, I should say, into something else. So the most logical solution to her was to leave him in nothing but his underwear and just make that his costume. And just made me wonder if anyone from the Comics Code office, which was basically the FCC at the time for comics, or I'm not sure if they're still around, actually, I didn't really look into it. But I was wondering if um, anyone from that office noticed that Metamorpho didn't have on clothes. Maybe not. I mean, since they allowed her to continue running the character, I guess they didn't notice or didn't care or didn't get enough complaints to care. Anyway, Freighton returned full-time to comics in the 1970s, working on DC titles such as Superman, Batman, Plastic Man, Freedom Fighters, and Super Friends. In 1980, she left DC Comics and joined Dale Disick's newspaper strip, Brenda Starr Reporter, for the Chicago Tribune Syndicate. Eventually, Freighton retired in 1995, but did return to comics on several occasions, which as follows. Sonic the Hedgehog for Archie Comics in 1999. Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy for Nickelodeon Magazine in 2004. Contributed pencils to The Adventures of Unemployed Man and The Art of Ramona Freighton in 2010. Wrote and drew a children's book, The Dinosaur That Got Tired of Being Extinct, in 2012. Second up is Marie Severin. She's described in the film as the unofficial art director of Marvel Comics. If publishers needed a job done quickly and efficiently, she was the one they approached. In 1950, Marie and her brother John joined EC Comics with Marie as the only woman artist in the quote-unquote bullpen. EC was unlike any other comic publishing company at the time with their anthology comic titles varying from science fiction, horror, and crime genres. They were known for their cleverly written stories and extra attention to coloring. Severin was known as the moral compass of the company where she would rein in the male writers and artists that portrayed women too sexually explicit or their deaths too gruesome. Moreover, Severin's pop of color clarified the gruesome and highly detailed drawings, a technique still used to this day by colorists. I personally believe that a woman's presence or figurative touch is always a good thing. It's in everyone's best interest to have a woman around. 
She uh she softens your hardened edges and stubbornness, provides emotional support, and reveals vulnerabilities that can be worked on as a strength, not a weakness or a show of incompetence. And I just give this really really short list of a lot of her works. I only I tried to limit each feature to two pages. And she took up nearly four to five pages. So with EC Comics, she did Tales of the Crypt, The Haunt of Fear, Weird Fantasy, and Weird Science. That's just to name a few. And under Atlas Comics, which was later known as Marvel Comics, she did Tales to Astonish, issue number 87 and number 90 with a submariner. Kid Called Outlaw, issue 133. And it was called Kid, Kid Called, that was the character. And... Master of the Mystics issue 153 through number, do, what was that, do 160. So 153 to 160, and that was with Doctor Strange. In, 19, in June 1967, Tales to Astonish issue number 92, Severin replaced Gil Kane as a penciler for The Incredible Hawk, even after Marvel retitled retitled Astonish to the Incredible Hawk in April 1968 to October 1968. In the same year, Seven returned to Submariner, drawing the lead stories until March 1970. And I'm just going to leave it there with her. Again, she was taking up way too much and I didn't want to, I didn't want the features to be disproportionate. So I'm just going to leave it there with her. Furthermore, as the 1960s raged on, so did the feminist movement. Women were becoming more comfortable in taking on the lead role at work and in society. However, many people didn't appreciate the women's rights uprising. So instead of trying to understand and emphasize what women were saying and no longer politely asking for, opposers of the feminist movement decided to make matters a, a thousand times worse. Underground Comics was a juvenile reaction to society based out of San Francisco created by disgruntled and frankly disturbed grown men. Many of the subjects of the comics were abusive towards women and girls. And here is that trigger warning I provided in the beginning about just, I'm just mentioning what it was. I'm not going into detail about it, but I just, again, I just want to give you all a heads up. So like I said, many of the subjects of the comics were abusive towards women and girls, i.e. rape, murder, spanking, and torture. So female comic artists decided to make their own version to combat the grotesque misogyny. The two comics named in this doc documentary is It Ain't Me Babe and again here's that trigger warning with the explicit sexual, sexual title. It Ain't Me Babe and Tits and Clits Comics. Comics like these discuss lesbianism, menstruation, and women's bodies by and for women. Although Trina Robbins is frequent throughout the documentary and mentioned a few times in my research, I was more interested in Joyce Farmer and her time with Tits and Clicks comics. So sorry to all the Trina Robbins and Tr Trina Robbins fans out there. Anyway, together with Lynn Shevley, she and Farmer brought humor to the feminist movement and combated the rampant sexism by their male counterparts in their first comics issue, Tits and Clicks, in 1972. Another controversial yet necessary women's issue the two women portrayed was abortion in the explicit title, Abortion Eve. The comic was inspired by their jobs working at a free abortion clinic, so they 
understood firsthand how important and beneficial it was to create an educational comic that gave women and possibly young teenage girls access to the medical aspects of an abortion and emphasized the emotional distress of an unwanted pregnancy. However, because of the comic's nature, Farmer and Shevley lived in constant fear of being arrested because the local authorities believed them to be publishing and distributing pornography. Thankfully, after discussions with the ACLU, they were convinced they had no case and dropped any and all charges against the two women. After the ordeal, they temporarily changed their name to Pandora's Box Comics until 1976 when they returned to Tits and Clits. A total of seven issues were published before the publication ended in 1987. The first two issues were solely created by Shevley and Farmer, but in issues three through seven, other artists joined the team, amongst them was Trina Robbins. Although Shevley returned after the first three, I'm sorry, although Shevley retired after the first three publications, Farmer stayed well into the 1980s before briefly retiring herself. Eventually, she returned to comics inspired by her ailing father and stepmother, chronicling her, their final years and slow decline in health. One of the stories appeared in Zero Zero, a comics anthology in 2007. I'm sorry, in 2000. In 2010, Farmer released a 208-page memoir, Special Exits, and the book went on to win the National Cartoonist Society Graphic Novel Award, as well as the Inkpot Award in 2011. During this time, Wendy Peeney also creates a lane for herself and opens up a new subculture in the world of nerd through her Red Sonja cosplay. Now, obviously, she didn't invent cosplay, but she gained notoriety for appearing at conventions dressed as the iconic character. After touring from one convention after the other, her and her creative partner and husband, actually, Richie Peeney, both started their own publishing company called Warp, which is like an acronym for Wendy, her, na her name Wendy, A for and, R.P. Richard Peeney, which was, I thought was super cute. <laughs> and uh, they did that in 1977. There, they published the original series and cult classic Elf Quest out of their HQ from 1978 to 1984. Elf Quest stories describe a group of elves searching for a new home. The stories contain an autobiographical element set in a fairy tale world with a vast and complicated lot of characters. Between 1992 and 2002, Warp launched several spin off series such as Hidden Years alongside other artists before downsizing to just Wendy and Richard in 2002. Wendy's other works include a comic book adaptation of the TV show Beauty and the Beast with First Comics, illustrated for both Marvel and DC, a comic adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's short story Mask of the Red Death, another cult classic and widely renowned comic mentioned in the documentary is the X-Men. Under Chris Claremont's guidance, X-Men featured more female characters than any other comic during that time, co-creating many characters such as Rogue, Kitty Pryde, Mystique, and Mora X. In the film, he described his thoughts on a new character's portrayal by initially asking himself, is there any reason why this character can't be female? Two female writers he brought on board under his direction also mentioned in the film were Louise Simonson and Anne Nocenti. 
Another woman pioneer in comics ships from Marvel to DC Comics with Jeanette Kahn. She rebranded national periodical publications as DC Comics, reviving the failing company as a proving ground for both experimental titles and reboots for characters such as Batman and Superman. After graduating from Harvard, Kahn created three of her own magazines called Kids, Dynamic Scholastic, and Smash. In 1976, Khan became publisher of DC Comics, which she named after Detective Comics, where Batman first appeared. In 1982, she became president and soon after editor-in-chief in 1989. Khan pushed the boundaries of mainstream comics, publishing the, first, the, publishing the graphic novel Watchmen, bringing in Frank Miller to transform the, the campy version of Batman to the more grittier version now associated with DC. So think... Adam West to Christian Bale, or even Adam West to Michael Keaton's version. So then, after launching the... I'm sorry, after that, she was able to then launch the experimental line, or imprint line, I should say, Vertigo in 1993. She grew the company from just 35 employees to 200, half of which were women, and implemented policies in which creators kept the rights to their characters and ideas. In 2000, the Library of Congress honored her as a living legend for her contributions to America's cultural heritage. Khan then left DC Comics in 2002 to launch her own production company, Double Nickel, which produced The Flock in 2007 and Grand Torino in 2008. Speaking of vertical uh, and a grittier DC, a lot of that is thanks to Karen Berger. Pretty much immediately after graduating from Brooklyn College in 1979, Berger signed on as an assistant editor at DC. I couldn't find out how she achieved that feat so quote-unquote immediately, but I assume based on the timeline of events, Khan entered, entered DC first, did some housekeeping, approved the Berger as an editor as a way to shift the comic stale content and as a part of her plan to bring in more female employees. And as Khan gained more authority in D.C., she was able to approve of and gave the green light to Burger's imprint Vertigo. The documentary doesn't go too far into it, too much detail into it. But that's just from my assessment from how they work together and how their, their timelines met up with one another. Anyway... Back to Berger. Editing horror and speculative titles became her specialty, like Swamp Thing and House of Mystery. She edited Neil Gaiman's modern epic award-winning Sandman, transforming Vertigo from experimental to solid and reputable. From 1993 to 2013, the independent imprint sidestep family-friendly superheroes to something more fitting to a Adults from gonzo journalism to positive depiction of gay characters, fairy tales, and global pandemics. As executive producer, Burger championed complex, challenging stories, most notably Again Sandman, V for Vendetta, Hellblazer, Fables, Why, The Last Man, and Trans Metropolitan. Like Khan, Burger also pushed for creators to keep the rights to their works instead of the publishers. She's won the Comics Buyer's Guide Award for the Best Editor every year from 1997 to 2005. 
She's won a prestigious Eisner Award in 1992, 94, and 95. In 2013, Berger retired from Vertigo. Shortly thereafter, returned in 2017 with Dark Horse Comics imprint Burger Books. As of July 6, 2019, DC Comics announced that by 2020, Vertigo will be shut down. In response, Burger tweeted, quote, Corporate thinking and risk-taking don't mix. DC nixing Vertigo was a long time coming, but hey, we changed the game and we had a blast doing it. Honored to have worked with so many incredibly talented creators and editors, and thanks to all our fab readers. Hashtag Vertigo, hashtag Burger Books, unquote. Although many of the women previously mentioned persevered through the ranks either as a creator, writer, editor, or as an executive, there was still no real representation of women working in comics in the media. Someone mentioned comics at the time were disreputable and embarrassing. It was hard for women to get jobs in comics unless it was for little girls, Wonder Woman, or an extremely feminine subject matter stereotypical in the eyes of men. Because of the lack of representation in the media, a group of women working in the industry including Heidi McDonald, again Trina Robbins, Liz Schiller, Jackie Estrada, and Anita Bennett, just to name a few, all attended WarnerCon in 1993 and handed off flyers to any woman interested in a meeting they were having at a local coffee shop to express their frustrations with the comics industry. McDonald described a packed shop full of women expressing a pattern of experiences, their attempts to and subsequent rea uh, rejections with publishing, feeling unwanted in, co in comic shops, and again the lack of representation on the cover and in the pages of their favorite comics. This is when Friends of Lulu started. It was a grassroots organization that provided a safe space for female comic artists, writers, and readers alike to combat the hostility they were met with either at work, in the comics market, in the media, or at the local comic shop outfitted solely for male customers. While tabling at conventions, group members asked women attending the events what their reading preferences were. Learning what women like to see and read was essential for making progress in increasing women's interest in comics. In 1997, Friends of Lulu created a handbook for comic shop owners called How to Get Girls Parentheses Into Your Shop. Close parentheses. <laughs> the handbook offered a plethora of advice on the topic, such as how to display a product to make it more marketable and tips on how to make their shop more welcoming to women. Together, this organization was able to create a significant ripple effect, slowly but surely giving female comic artists, writers, and readers alike a voice in a figurative seat at the table in the sexist publishing companies and toxic comic male dominant community. There's still a long way to go, especially now since the internet has become a much bigger, hungrier, and toxic beast than when Friends of Lou first started publishing their handbooks and newsletters there for a wider outreach to their female readers. However, just recently, Liz Schiller stated at San Diego Comic-Con, if you want change, you have to work together. Speaking of the internet, <laughs> in her game Simone. In the film, she's described as a comics writer who started an online forum called Women in Refrigerators to express her grievances with how female characters were killed off in comics. 
She couldn't comprehend the brutality and the unnecessary reasons why, or just, just how they, how women were killed off from their storyline. And then it concluded with a male character coming in to avenge her death. The story was no longer about her, but the relationship she had with the man that either loved her or had some type of connection with her. It wasn't about her anymore. It was their connection together. But before Women in Refrigerators, Simone was known for our humor column, You'll Be Sorry, which was a weekly feature on comic book resources with topics ranging from short satirical summaries of old and new comic book series, aka condensed comic classics, to parodies of fan fiction. Simone also worked on Bongo Comics, scripted comics based on The Simpsons, one on the annual Treehouse of Horror specials, regular scripts for the Bart Solo series, and did many of the Sunday strips of the syndicated Simpsons comic strip. Simone eventually worked her way into mainstream comics through Marvel's Deadpool, which turned into Agent X, but then she left after conflicts with the editor. However, after fan outcry, Simone was brought back well after the series cancellation. But due to more conflict with Marvel, Simone moved on to DC Comics with Bird of Prey. And later, she produced the Villains United miniseries, where she revitalized Catwoman. In a documentary, Simone expressed almost an indifference at this point about the comments and even threats from men she receives nearly every day from the 20-year-old Women in Refrigerators forum. And even though Simone was met with harsh criticism from disgruntled male readers, she was met with an equal and possibly greater appreciation from female readers who agreed with her frustrations and dismay with the current comics content in stores. The growing popularity in internet forums and fan sites leveled the playing field for women and young girls, allowing them to publish their own web comics and writings in a safe and supportive environment. Now on to my review and um they called this part the golden age of women in comics, which is pretty much the current time now, I should say, of women in comics. So we now live in an era where it's normal for women to attend comic conventions, read, write, and create their own comics. And when I attend comic cons myself, I don't feel outnumbered by men as much as I do in regards to race. There's more white people that attend these conventions than black people, not only in attendees, but the vendors and artist booths. The documentary discusses the pressure and negativity women and young girls face after revealing themselves as quote-unquote geeks or nerds or dorks or whatever you want to call it, or just simply expressing just a smidget of interest in these such things, but nothing to do with race. This is why it was important for me to talk about Jackie Orms or it really piqued my interest about Jackie Orm. That's why I really, really want to talk about her. And to see Felicia Henderson and Jennifer Crute and Amy Chu and G. Willow Wilson, I, I understand why little girls, when they go to these conventions or go into the comic shops or watch TV or watch movies and they see themselves in the women on screen or in person, but it's just as equally important to see a variety of women across race and ethnicity and religion and nationality and what have you, uh, abled and disabled, you know, maybe this, it, it fell short on those aspects simply maybe because of the time limit or production budget. Like they had a, a lot, a lot of women 
even if it was just maybe a couple, maybe under a minute of screen time, but they had a lot of women on there. Uh, I believe their main goal was to inspire other female artists, readers, writers, and cosplayers to just just go for it in regards to their dreams and goals in life. In that aspect, the filmmakers definitely inspired me to do more and seek more information about the artists that they may not have had time to discuss or may just had a lack of information or they had the information, they just didn't have the context of what it was. And, and I'm I'm pretty sure I did the same thing here with my review. So, you know, I encourage you to do the same and discover more about the people that came before you. If anyone in this documentary, if anyone from this review that I just gave you piques your interest, definitely go and look them up. Simple Google search or, you know, you can go to a library. Libraries still exist, I promise you, and they're free last time I checked. <laughs> but anyway, this was She Makes Comics, which is currently... Uh, on Netflix, at least Netflix USA. Again, it was produced by Respect Films and Sequart Organization. Again, my name is K.S. Garner, and you've been listening to the Solo Nerva Podcast. Thank you.